the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Should we remain standing? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this promise that no one can take our joy from us and that one day in you, our joy will be full. May we be men and women of joy. Would you fill us up and through us spread the joy of the good news of Jesus to the world around us. We pray for the honor and glory of your name. Amen. Please be seated. On the night before he was killed, Jesus told his disciples that it was to their advantage that he was going away. They were dumbfounded. But he assured them that in his place he would send the Holy Spirit to lead them into all truth and to be with them forever. Now it's hard to imagine anything better than being with Jesus. But last week we began to see the truth of his words to those disciples as we cracked open Romans 8 and we caught a glimpse of the Holy Spirit in action. In the opening verses of Romans 8, we learned that when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell with us, as he does every follower of Jesus who turns to him in faith, the Spirit ushers us into a life of freedom and invites us into a life of intimacy with God. For the first time, we experience freedom from the enslaving power of sin, freedom to conform our lives to the will of the one who made us. And as God's adopted children, we experience profound intimacy with him, calling him Abba Father as we share Jesus' relationship with God. But there's more to the work of the Holy Spirit than this. In our reading for this morning, we learn about two more aspects of the Spirit's ministry. The Holy Spirit joins us in our suffering and then leads us into glory. You're going to want to turn to Romans 8 with me. It's on page 944 in the Red Bibles as we consider these twin themes, suffering and glory, which are introduced to us in verses 16 to 18. 
Paul writes this, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's a wonderful scene in the movie Princess Bride where Princess Buttercup comes face to face with the dread pirate Roberts, a man whom she believes has killed her long-lost love. In a feisty confrontation, Buttercup accuses him of mocking her pain, to which he replies, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. I love the fact that some, I could see some of you mouthing along the words with me. I've always loved this line. I don't really know why. It's brutally honest, teetering on the edge of cynicism. But as the scene unfolds and the pirate reveals himself to be Buttercup's long-lost love, Wesley, we learn that it's not without hope. Real life is filled with pain. It's marked by suffering, but it is also shaped by hope because the promise of the gospel is that suffering gives way to glory like the dawn gives way to the rising sun. In this middle section of Romans 8, the dominant theme is glory. Paul introduces it in verse 17. He returns to it in verse 18 and again in verse 21 before coming back to it at verse 30. Glory bookends the whole sequence, providing the logic of new life in the Spirit. It's glory that drives the story of our lives, and it's glory that sets our suffering in a new context. But what exactly is glory? Well, first and foremost, we know that glory belongs to God. It's part of what makes God, God. Glory is power, perfection, beauty. It's irresistibly attractive. It's also kind of scary. In the Old Testament, God's glory is associated with thunder, lightning, earthquakes, and the incandescence of the sun. It's hidden in a cloud that that, that guides God's people by day and a fire that lights their path by night. God's glory makes people fall on their faces before him. It shakes them with awe It also changes them. When Moses went up on the mountain to receive God's law, he encountered God's glory, and he came back shining so brightly he had to put a veil over his face to dim the light. Glory belongs to God the Father, and it's shared by Jesus, his Son, who rose in glory from the dead and then ascended in glory to heaven where he reigns at God's right hand hand. Jesus is glorious. He's perfect, powerful, beautiful, tender, and yes, a little bit terrifying. But you know, there's more to the glory of God and his son. In verse 17, Paul promises that having suffered with Christ, we will be glorified with Christ. And he goes on in verse 18 to explain what he means by this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. That's a lot to take in. The first thing to notice in verse 18 is that we will see the glory of God. Like Moses, it will be revealed to us. Now, Paul doesn't explain how this will happen, only that it will. And the truth is, he's eager to move on because seeing God's glory is just the beginning. The really shocking revelation of Romans 8 is not that we will see God's glory, but that we will share God's glory through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So according to Paul, part of what it means to be the children of God and co-heirs with Jesus is that we will come to share or participate in his glory. We don't become gods, but we become so like God that we share his beauty, his perfection, and his power. You who have trusted in Jesus for your salvation have his Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And the Holy Spirit isn't just the source of your life in Christ, your freedom through Christ, or the means by which you relate to God who created you. The Holy Spirit is like a nuclear power plant of incipient glory ready to burst out and fill the world with light. Now, you may be here this morning feeling weak or inadequate or ugly or ashamed or just plain tired. But the spirit that lit the stars on fire at creation shines within you. The unspeakable beauty of a perfect God is being etched on your face as he works in your heart. Power that spins the planets and shakes the earth has taken up residence in your fingertips. The living God has come to you through his Holy Spirit and is busy shaping you for glory. But that's not all. There's actually more. Glory isn't just something that we come to possess. Glory has a purpose. And that is to set creation free so that it might fulfill its purpose of bringing glory to God. So last week, last week we saw how Paul looks back to the story of creation in order to understand the ministry of Jesus. In Genesis 1 and 2, God made human beings in his image to reflect his glory as stewards of creation. We were made to take creation to its full potential, but in their sin, Adam and Eve squandered this incredible opportunity. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, not only were they cursed, creation was cursed as well. Cursed is the ground because of you, God said to them in Genesis 3.17. And creation has been under that curse ever since, so that Paul describes the world 
as being subject to futility in verse 20 and under bondage to decay in verse 21. Since our rebellion, Paul explains in verse 22, creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth. Through Jesus, however, humankind has been renewed. Jesus is a new Adam, firstborn of a new creation. And this new creation is one in which sin, death, and suffering will become distant memories. A creation in which the curse of the fall will be reversed, not just for us, but for everything that God has made. Because of human sin, the earth aches beneath our feet. Creation has been held back, hampered, imprisoned. It is stunted, frustrated, and fouled by our sin. But now a new creation has begun. God is at work redeeming us, but not only us. Through our redemption, the rest of the created order will experience freedom, joy, purpose, and fulfillment. As Paul says, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. You and I, you and I in all of our weakness and insignificance are somehow part of God's plan to bring creation back to the way it was always meant to be. That is glory. Because God's Spirit dwells within you, His glory is with you as well. And though we only catch glimpses now, one day we will possess it fully and lead the world to glory as we minister alongside our elder brother, Jesus. As I said earlier, glory is the dominant theme of this middle section of Romans 8. We will see it and we will share it. But glory, as you well know, stands side by side with suffering. If glory draws us forward in expectation of the fullness of our redemption, suffering still causes us to double over in pain. And it's to the suffering of our present existence that we now need to turn. So in verse 17, Paul makes clear that suffering is a natural and necessary part of life with Christ. But what does he mean? Well, what Paul isn't saying is that we somehow have to seek out suffering or earn a merit badge in it. There isn't a line at the top of our suffering bucket that says, fill to here in order to earn salvation. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus told his disciples quite simply, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Suffering is a normal part of following Jesus. We suffer the pain that comes from breaking free of sinful habits We suffer the pain of mockery and even persecution for worshiping a crucified Lord. We suffer the pain of spiritual warfare as Satan rails against our thirst for righteousness. We suffer the consequences of living in a broken world with mortal bodies and failing health. 
Suffering is a natural consequence of our salvation and a normal part of human existence. Our typical response to suffering, however, is to try to run from it, to turn it off, to soothe the pain. But what if all of our running and hiding and soothing and self-medicating is a distraction from the true medicine of the Holy Spirit who uses suffering to usher in glory? Let me try to explain. Suffering, whether it is the normal suffering of everyday life or the special suffering that comes from Christian discipleship, It reminds us of the consequences of sin, our desperate need for redemption, and the hope we have for salvation. So suffering, suffering is proof that something is wrong with the world, something that God came to fix through the ministry of Jesus Christ, and something that will be ultimately healed when the whole of creation is renewed at the last day. So suffering reminds us of where we are, what's wrong, and what God has done about it. Suffering sets us in context. So what do we do with our suffering? Well, Paul tells us that we need to learn to groan. Three times in our passage, Paul mentions groaning. In verse 22, he talks about the groaning of creation. In verse 23, he talks about how we groan with longing for the redemption of our bodies. And then in verse 26, he says that the Spirit himself groans on our behalf as he intercedes for us with God the Father. Groaning, it's an involuntary expression of sorrow or pain or disapproval. In the Old Testament, the word is used to describe the response of God's people to the oppression of their enemies. Now, groaning is fundamentally different from grumbling which God's people were also very fond of. They still are. The heart of grumbling is complaint, and it leads to despair. The heart of groaning is godly discontent that leads to a longing for redemption. We groan knowing that relief is coming and that one day those groans will be silenced by songs of joy. Now, if you want to know more about what this looks like practically, then I would encourage you to go back and listen to the series of sermons we preached during Lent on the Psalms of Lament. Groaning is just another word for lamenting. I found as I've grown older that I experience sadness and sorrow more than I did when I was young, younger. I struggled with this. And I've wondered if it re- reflects some kind of spiritual weakness or, or apathy. But I've come to realize that it is actually often a mark of spiritual maturity, of growing spiritual maturity. You see, in some ways, the Spirit turns up the volume on our suffering as we grow in Christ because we understand the scope of what's wrong with the world so much better. We know that it's not just us, but all of creation that groans under the weight and the consequences of sin. 
I know more and more what I was made for and what the world is meant to be. I know what you were made for and what you were meant to be. Through suffering, I see the contrast between God's plans and present life. And I see it more and more clearly. And I groan in the Spirit as a result because I long for all things to be made right. And so I'm drawn ever closer to God even in the midst, especially in the midst of hard things. And that is a gift of the Spirit. Paul explains this in verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit is the means by which we endure the distance between our present suffering and our future glory. The Holy Spirit bridges the gap. In the midst of suffering, it's the Spirit who holds us in place, who keeps us steady, who speaks for us when we don't have the words. The Spirit fashions in us a longing for the perfection of new creation. He gives us glimpses of glory, experiences of true intimacy, peace, and prayer. The Spirit both anticipates and guarantees that all will come right when Christ returns. And because of this, our suffering is grounded in hope. It's grounded in hope. And that's why Paul mentions hope again and again in this passage. Six times in verses 19, 24, and 25. In a world of suffering that's headed to glory, we live in hope. The passage ends with the following astonishing declaration. And we know, verse 28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Don't worry, I'm not going to say anything about predestination. To say that all things work together for good, it is not a trite invitation to find the silver lining in an awful situation. Okay? It is a command to look forward to the end that we know will come when God will set all things right, when our bodies will be fully redeemed, when creation will begin to sing the song written for it from the very beginning, when the glory of God becomes the glory of his people and suffering fades into distant memory. So just as he began, so Paul ends this section with glory. Did you see it? But here he speaks of it in the past tense as if it's already happened. That is how sure he is of this incredible sequence at the end. 
And that's the power of the hope we have in Jesus, the new Adam, our elder brother, who redeemed us by suffering on the cross, who promises us glory, and who has given us his Holy Spirit as our companion on the way. Let's give him thanks. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We barely understand. We barely understand what you have given us, who you are as you dwell within us by your Spirit. But we pray that you would fill us with the hope, the knowledge, the certainty of glory. That as we live lives that include suffering, some of it so hard, that we would be drawn ever forward by your presence with us into the glory you created us to possess. And we pray that you would draw all things into that glory, that you might be honored, that we might be set free, that your world might be redeemed. Amen.